The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. We are going to continue our study of 2 Thessalonians this morning and actually finishing up chapter 2. Now, so far in this chapter, we've seen that the Thessalonians, he started out by telling them not to be shaken because they had gotten word, they had gotten a letter, supposedly from Paul, that telling them that the day of the Lord had already happened. Now, we've talked much about the day of the Lord through Thessalonians, all right? It's used a lot throughout the Tanakh. It's used four times in the New Testament. But every time it's used in the New Testament, it's always referring to Jerusalem and the destruction in A.D. 70. I've said that over and over. But this past week, I received an email from a man that informed me that I've been wrong about that date. Okay, so he straightened me out on the date of this. He says this in the email. I must tell you that God told me. Almost lost me right there. Okay. He said, the fire of Malachi 4, the day that God is going to burn as an oven, happens August 12th, 2024, by way of solar flare. That's next year, people. So you only got a year left, so get your stuff in order. Get, get ready. Now he says, now all prophecy has been fulfilled, so how is this possible? In other words, he's referencing the fact that I say all prophecy has been fulfilled, so, so how is this possible? It's not. You're making this stuff up, Okay. He said, will you reconsider a future return of Christ when you see this happen? No, we won't think anything when we see it happen because the earth will be burned up. Okay? So, you know, I just... Okay, God told him. August 12, 2024 by solar flare. Now you, you know what happens to prophets when they were wrong. You killed them, okay? So... We'll see you on the 13th. We'll see you on the 13th of August, and we'll talk about this, okay? Y'all bring some stones with you, okay? <laughs> you know, this is, this is not that different. Most, most of the church today is looking forward to a future day. Now, they don't narrow a date down on how it's going to happen in all this, but, but and, and most see Second Thessalonians that we're looking at, chapter 2, they're talking about events that are future to us. They always tie the Antichrist in there somehow, but this is future to us, which would make it mean absolutely nothing to the Thessalonians. So he wrote to the Thessalonians, but it wasn't for them. It's a secret code for 2,000 years later for us to catch on, okay? Now, Paul assures the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord had not yet come and would not come. He tells them, until the rebellion came and the man of lawlessness was revealed. Then once he was revealed, he said the Lord would kill him with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This is the second coming, which was a divine judgment that would be brought against those who were persecuting the first century Thessalonian believers. And this judgment he talked about in chapter 1, he said in verse 6 and 7, since indeed God considers it just, to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So he's telling the Thessalonians, God's going to repay these people that are afflicting you, and he's going to give you relief who are being afflicted as well as us. When this is going to happen? He said, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So the persecutors are going to be repaid. 
And they're going to get relief when the Lord returned in the day of the Lord. So how does August 12th, 2024 date help the Thessalonians? I mean, they're probably excited, you know, now that they found they only have a year to wait, right? You think the Thessalonians are excited about that? It's just, you know, we just take the Bible to a place that it becomes foolishness. Then in verse 13 and 14, Paul tells them about the electing grace of God in their lives, which stand in dramatic contrast to the previous verses about God's judgment on those who don't believe the truth. The unbeliever is going to be destroyed in a fiery judgment, he says, but they have been chosen from the beginning to obtain the glory of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. Now in verse 15, Paul returns to the principal concern of this section, which is the stability of the Thessalonian Christians in the face of false teachings. He said, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now, he says, so then. Now, Bauer, BDG, lexicon, says, so then. And it has this. It says, ara, un. Ara is a coordinating or inferential conjunction, so then, or consequently, he, they say, but here it is strengthened with un, another conjunction, meaning therefore then. Ara points to the intense, uh, it points to the inference drawn from the preceding context, and un to the transitional focus or exhortation that should result. So they're just saying, so then, because. Because of the rebellion, because of the man of lawlessness, because of the deception that he causes, stand firm. Now he uses the term brothers here. And it's interesting that Paul uses this a lot as a transition through the scriptures. This is from the Greek word adelphos, uh, alpha, and delphos. And delphos means from the womb. So basically you're saying brothers from the same womb. We're all part of the family of God and the fact that he, that he calls them brothers indicates that these people had experienced the new birth. He's talking to Christians. This is a sign of endearment. And then he tells them to stand firm. Now this is from the Greek word stako. This word is found only in the New Testament. It's a late Kone Greek word. It's a military term that means to be at point in a war where it's necessary to stand firm, to be stabilized. It's used of a soldier who will not budge from his post no matter how intense the battle gets. That's what he's telling him. Listen, brothers, stand firm. There's a lot going on in your lives, I know that. But stand firm. It's a present tense command indicating that this isn't a one-time need. We could translate it, keep standing firm. He's telling them to remain at their post and not to move. He said there needs to be no compromise with error, with sin, with doctrine, with conduct. We need to stand firm. Now this call for stability is in contrast to being shaken or alarmed in verse 2. So he said in verse 2, don't be quickly shaken, but you drop down to verse 15, stand firm. Now shaken there in verse 2 is seluo, and it means to agitate, to shake, to unsettle, to waver. It's a present passive infinitive which speaks of a continuing occurrence by an outside agent. They keep hearing these things and it's causing them to be shaken. It was used of moving away from something, like a ship which suddenly tore away from its mooring 
by strong winds. So he's worried about them being shaken, being moved away, being unsettled. And then he tells them, stand firm. And this exhortation could be understood as a call to stability, a call to faithfulness in light of false teaching that they were hearing and also the persecution they were experiencing. I think you can understand that you know, false teaching can make people drift away. Uh, persecution can make people move away. And he's telling them to stand your ground. Now the means for stability is found in the command, hold to, he tells them. Hold to the traditions. This is the verb krateo, and it means to be strong, to be mighty, hence to rule, to be master, prevail. And from this it came to mean to hold on to something strongly or tightly so that it cannot be lost or taken away. Now both stand firm and hold to are in the continuous present tense and the imperative mood, the mood of command. So the focus of this subject is to be held tightly. And what is that? He says the traditions that were taught by us. Now, traditions here is from the Greek word parodesis, and it means that which is handed down or handed over. The term parodesis is used in several senses. Negatively, parodesis is used in the New Testament of the teaching of the Jewish rabbis. So, this word parodesis sometimes is used in a positive light, sometimes it's used in a negative light. Look at it in Matthew 15, 1-3. He says, The Pharisees and the scribes came to Yeshua from Jerusalem and said, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? There's our word, parodesis. Why do they break that tradition? Here's how they're breaking their tradition. They don't wash their hands before they eat. So these, the Pharisees sound like mothers, don't they? Did you wash your hands? And so Yeshua answers them and said, Why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Now that tells us that their tradition is a violation of the Word of God. Let me give you a little history here to help you understand what's going on. From the end of the book of Malachi to the beginning of the Gospels, there's about a 400 year period, intertestamental period. It was in that time period that the Pharisees, the scribes, and the synagogue all really came into being. And that's really where the scribes and the Pharisees got their power. They would stand before the people, they would read the Hebrew Scriptures in the synagogue, and they would teach them. They would, make, they would take the commands of the Scripture and just share them with the people. And I think for the most part, their intentions were good when they started out. They wanted the people to walk in obedience to the law. The problem was, they didn't trust that they could just give them the law of God and that would be okay. They had to make sure they understood what they were talking about. In other words, they, they added laws to the laws just so you didn't break the law, okay? So they took the 613 and turned it into thousands, all right? For example, if they were dealing with the issues of the Sabbath, they would define it very clearly. You can do this, but you can't do that. And then somebody would raise the question, well, can I do this? And they would say, well, you can walk 10 steps, but you can't walk 15. And so they had a very detailed list of do's and don'ts in order to observe the law. This became known as the oral tradition. It also became known as the tradition of the elders, the oral law. Now, about 200 years after Christ, the oral law was actually written down and was known as the Mishnah, which still is a significant document for Orthodox Jews. But at this time, it was an oral law. 
but it was very binding in the minds of the people. As a matter of fact, their oral law was binding as the commandments of God. They were on equal footing. So we can see that their tradition didn't come from the law of God. There's nothing in the law of God about washing your hands when you eat. Okay? Go through that. You can find out. There's nothing. He doesn't tell them anything. There's something they added to it. They were actually breaking the law of God in order to keep their tradition. And so the Lord is here rebuking the Pharisees because they had raised their religious traditions above Scripture. Glad we don't do that today, huh? Paul does not mean tradition as it is often understood in modern English in the sense of mere human customs, you know, that one can simply accept or reject. You know, we have a tradition, we basically celebrate Christmas on Christmas Eve. That's our big day. It's just a tradition. We've done it forever, so it's kind of, we just keep doing it. There's no binding on that, you know, it's just a family tradition. And he doesn't use it in the sense of the Roman Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church you know, they put great emphasis on their traditions that have been handed down, but to them, they're equal to the faith. And often these traditions supersede the Bible in authority. With the Catholic Church's traditions like uh, transubstantiation or immaculate conception of Mary, praying to the saints, purgatory, all these other teachings have no basis in Scripture. But these churches who hold these traditions will point to this verse, like verse 15, and say, see, the Bible says hold the traditions. I mean, they'll use this as a proof text to try to get their people, well, this is our tradition, you've got to keep it. And Paul uses parodicus here in our text of the teaching that's handed down by the apostles and the team that was with him, <coughs> which in turn had been handed down to them by the Lord. He calls them the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by a letter. So, <clears throat> notice what he says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. He says, now, the reason I don't have the whole verse in here is because I wanted to put this on one slide. Okay, so let me read you the first part so someone doesn't think, hey, he's trying to take verse out of context. The beginning of the verse that I took out says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not according with the tradition that you receive from us. So the only traditions that are valid traditions are the traditions of the Word of God. The traditions of the apostles, the apostolic traditions that they handed down in the Word of God. The inspired Word of God, people, is our only source of spiritual truth. And today, you know, the battles going on of people holding up other documents. Uh, you know, the creeds are being, you know, used against us. Well, the creeds say this. Well, okay, who wrote those creeds? Who wrote the Bible? We got to, you know. And the creeds can be useful. They can be helpful. They can also be detrimental. All right? He says, the traditions that were taught by us either by spoken word or letter. This phrase, either by spoken word or letter, is clearly a contrast to verse 2. In verse 2 he says, they're shaken by a spoken word or a letter seemingly from us. And then he says in our text, they hold the traditions that either by our spoken word or by our letter. Alright, so spoken word here is a reference to the teaching of the apostles they gave when they were in the city, 
And letter refers to the first correspondence sent to the Thessalonian church. So Paul's saying, these truths that I have taught you, hold tightly to them. They were to cling to these as the source and means of standing firm against all forms of false teaching, against all... Is it time? Okay. <laughs> she was joking before the service and said, if I go into labor, I can't leave till this message is over. And I'm like, no, nah, I'll let you leave. You can go ahead and go. <laughs> So Paul is telling them they were to cling to these things. They were to cling to the traditions, to what they had been taught as a source that would help them stand firm, not only against false teaching, but against the storms of life, regardless of their source. Now, as I said earlier, hold to here is from the verb kreteo, and it means to hold on to something strongly or tightly so that it cannot be lost or taken away. It's just the idea of grab it and hang on to it. Let me try to illustrate that for you by uh, the life of Henry Dempsey. In a New York Times article from September 4, 1987, entitled, Pilot is Survivor in Freakish Mishap. I like stories like this because I was in a plane crash back in 97, but this guy takes the cake, okay? He gives the story of his flight. Dempsey is flying his 15-passenger Beechcraft 99 turboprop from Lewiston, Maine to Boston. At 4,000 feet, he heard a noise in the back of the plane. That's where the rear stairs are at. So he turned the controls over to the co-pilot, and he walked to the back. As he got to the back, the plane hit some heavy turbulence and threw him against the door that popped open. So Dempsey was sucked partway out of the plane. On his way out, he grabbed the hole of the railings on the stairs, and he hung on. So he's laying outside the airplane, head down, hanging on to that railing. The plane is going 190 miles an hour at an altitude of 4,000 feet. Henry said... As he hung there, he says, partially in and partially out of the aircraft. And he was there for about 10 minutes before the plane landed. The co-pilot thought he'd fallen out of the plane. I mean, he looked back and he heard the door open and he, he's gone. So he couldn't see him. So he thought he's gone. So he says, well, I better land. Yeah, that'd be a good idea. When he landed, they found him with his face 12 inches off the runway. He's hanging on the, laying on the stairs, you know, his face is 12 inches from the runway. They said they had to pry his fingers off the railings on those stairways. And people, that's how we need to hang on to the Word of God. Like, it, it's life or death, because it is a life or death situation. It can save you, it can deliver you, but you've got to hang on with everything you got. And Paul is telling the Thessalonians, they need to stand firm. They need to hold on in the midst of persecution. In the midst of the rebellion, in the midst of the man of lawlessness and his deception and his false teaching. And the way they're going to stand firm is by holding on to the truth of the Word of God with a death grip. Now let me ask you a question, believers. Does this call to stand firm apply to us today? 
<laughs> okay, we got, I think we're positive for the most part. Well, the day of the Lord, the man of lawlessness, are not in our future. They happened in the first century. So, can we apply this? I mean, do we need to apply this teaching to us today? Well, I think so. And I get this question a lot. How do we know what applies to us and what doesn't? And that's a good question. That means someone understands audience relevance. So they understand the Bible's not written to us. It's written for us, but not to us. And so they say, okay, it's written to the Thessalonians. How do I know what applies to us and what doesn't? Well, here's how I look at this. In the New Testament, the word church is used to describe all Christians everywhere. The universal church. Or it's used to describe a local congregation, the churches, the church that is at Thessalonica. And it's usually designated you know, by a city that the believers live in, that local church. Every believer is part of the church universal. Therefore, when reading a letter to a local church, we need to seek to understand what part of it is specifically to the local assembly. In other words, there are some things that apply just to them. Maybe because of time-wise, because of the first century, maybe because of situations they're dealing with that we're not, or people in that church. So we need to find out what is he dealing with specifically to them, and what is it applicable to the universal church. And I think that most of the teaching we find in the New Testament is directed to the universal church and applies to all Christians in all times. Now, this is important, I say, because we got a group of people out there saying audience relevance means none of it has anything to do with us anymore. It was for them, forget about us. That's a foolish position to think that the church was growing, developing, and finally gets completed in 8070, and then poof, it's done. Just makes no sense, okay? The Bible is, is full of things for us. And from my perspective, unless I have strong reason not to, I want to apply the principles of the New Testament to believers today. You know, over and over, Paul told the believers to stand firm. To the Corinthians, he wrote, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. So he's telling them to stand firm, just like he told the Thessalonians. Well, he also tells the Galatians this. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. And then he tells the Philippians, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. So he's calling all these local churches to loyalty to the Lord. And it's the church universally speaking to. But he directs it towards these different congregations, telling them all the same thing. You guys need to stand fast. And he's doing this because the world is full of Christians on the retreat then and today. Christians are giving in to the pressures of the culture. Christians are living in sin. We need to hear this as much as the first century saints needed to hear it. And Paul gives us more insight into how we stand firm, I think, in this text of the Philippians. Because notice that he tells them to stand firm in the Lord. Now this is a call for Christ-centered life, for living in dependence upon the Lord and His strength. I want to go over to... Uh, chapter 6 of Ephesians, and notice what Paul writes to the Ephesians. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God. Now this chapter, this section is about the armor of God, and I'm sure you're all familiar with that. They were in the midst of a spiritual battle, so he's telling them, be strong, put on the armor. 
Why? He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, then he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That's human, right? Flesh and blood. But, he makes a contrast, against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic... These are all speaking of deities. These are speaking of heavenly powers. Cosmic powers is the Greek kosmokarator. Only used here, but used in other literature of gods. Fallen gods, evil beings. He says, over this present darkness, I'm stressing this because we got this group of people that I don't, they don't believe the devil ever was a real thing. It's just some human adversary. Well, explain human adversary out of this text for me. I just like to see it. I don't see much, much exegesis from these people, just a lot of saying things. He goes on, against the spiritual forces, again, they're spiritual, of evil, again, they're in heavenly places, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. Now, stand firm is the Greek word histemi. Our word stako comes from the present perfect tense of histemi. So Ephesians 6 clarifies what Paul means in Philippians 4.1 by in the Lord. See, we're not fighting Satan today. We're not fighting demons or gods. That battle is over, Okay. But as believers, we are in a battle. Evil men are always opposing the things of Christ. We constantly battle to walk in righteousness. We battle the flesh, which is always pulling us down. We have personal trials and troubles that cause us to break down in terms of trust <clears throat> or that make us nervous or anxious and cause us to worry or feel vengeance or carry bitterness. The family today is under a huge attack. They're trying to destroy our children. They're trying to wipe out any kind of gender. There's a lot of attack going on right now. Marriage is under attack. People, life is a struggle. And as Christians, we battle the worldview and the regulations of non-believers. But we, 21st century believers, we're not fighting against spiritual forces in the heavenly places. That battle was fought and won by our Lord 2,000 years ago. So Paul tells the, the believers then in Ephesus to be strong in the Lord. And be strong here is literally be continually strengthened in the original text. It's a present tense. And the passive verb suggests that they are not the ones who strengthen themselves, but continually depend on the Lord to strengthen them. Here's where our strength comes from, people. It's in the Lord. And the prepositional phrase, in the Lord, denotes the sphere from which the strength comes. Namely, it comes from our relationship, our union with the Lord. So Paul's command to be strong in the Lord rests on his first two chapters in Ephesians, where he makes it clear what it means to be in the Lord. Now, the phrase in the Lord refers to Christ, not God, which is consistent throughout this epistle of Ephesians. The strong Christian is the one who comes to see more and more of his own weakness, his own propensity towards sin, and that awareness drives him to depend more and more on the Lord's strength for anything and everything. Now, notice what Paul tells the Ephesians in verse 11. He says, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. Now, the words of God denote a genitive of origin and indicate that God provides the armor. 
So keep that in mind. God is providing this armor that we're to put on. They're to put on the <clears throat> armor so they can stand. And stand is a key word of this section. Again, it's a stake, oh, a military term. Hold your position in battle. Believers are to hold their position. We're to stand theologically against attack. In order to stand, though, he tells us we have to have on the armor of God. He said, put on the whole armor. Now, do you remember where Paul was when he wrote this letter to the Ephesians? I'll give you a hint. It's called the prison epistles. <laughs> in 620, he says, For which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's in prison, but he's writing this. And he's probably chained to a Roman guard. And he's probably constantly chained to a Roman guard. So many think that what Paul talks about putting on the armor of God, he's getting it from the Roman soldier here. And that may be. But I think it's more likely that he's getting it from the book of Isaiah, which says this of the Lord. Isaiah 11.5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt. Now that's one of the armors that he talks about in Ephesians chapter 6 there, put on the belt. He says, <clears throat> the belt of his waist, and faithfulness, the belt of his loins. Or maybe he's referring to Isaiah 49. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's another piece of the armor that we put on. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, you're my servant, Israel, whom I will be glorified. Or maybe it's chapter 59 where he says he put on righteousness as a breastplate. That's talked about in Ephesians 6. A helmet of salvation. That's from Ephesians 6. And on his head he put <clears throat> on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Now, what do these texts from Isaiah have in common? <clears throat> well, if you're familiar with Isaiah, you recognize immediately that Isaiah 11 is a messianic king. He predicts how he's going <clears> to <throat> come and establish his kingdom. It's a messianic chapter. Isaiah 49 is the chapter on the servant of Yahweh. Isaiah 59 is a messianic chapter. It has to do with Christ. So all three of these passages, they speak of the Lord, Yeshua, the Christ, as the warrior king of God. And the fact that he draws this description from the Old Covenant, messianic passages, suggests that he's really thinking, to me, I think he's thinking of Yeshua as the warrior, and we are in him. Therefore, we have his strength, his power, his authority in trials of life as we trust in him. Now, the armor, I think, may be just a graphic way of saying what Paul says in Romans 13, but put on the Lord Yeshua the Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, Christ himself is the armor. So what does Paul mean by put on Christ? Well, put on is the Greek word in duo, and it means put on, like you put on a coat. It means to envelop in. It has the idea of a garment which is wrapped around oneself. And the Greek word is usually used literally in that way of putting on a coat in the New Testament. So in duo, here is in the aorist imperative middle, and an aorist imperative calls for a specific, definite, decisive choice. Do this now, once for all. The middle voice indicates the subject performs an action on himself or herself. So we're the ones, we're to put on Christ. Believers are called to once and for all put on Christ as a garment 
And what, what they mean by putting on a garment is to play the part of Christ. It's like you're, you're putting on this and you're going to act this out. You're going to be like Christ. You're going to play the part of Christ. So Paul's saying, become like Yeshua. Act like Him. Well, that's what he said in Ephesians 5.1 where he said, told the believers, therefore be imitators of God. That's our calling. We're imitating. We're to be like Him. John put it this way, whoever says he abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. So if you're saying, yeah, I'm in Christ, I'm abiding in Christ, well, then you should be walking like Christ. Believers, we're going to be able to stand whatever comes our way. When we cling to the Scriptures, when we put on the Lord, when we become imitators of Him, and when we walk as He walked, living the Christ-like life gives us the strength to deal with whatever comes our way. Now let's move on. In verses 16 and 17, Paul offers the first prayer of this letter. And it's really not, technically it's not a prayer, it's a wish or a desire. Though his words are technically a prayerful wish rather than a prayer. And undoubtedly this this wish represents what he did pray for when he prayed. But Paul asked God to do two things in the Thessalonian Christians. First, he wanted God to comfort their hearts. Second, he was wishing that God would establish them in every good work. Now, in verse 16, he says, Now may our Lord Yeshua the Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. This prayer reveals a lot about Paul's theology, especially his Christology and his Trinitarian perspective of God or the Godhead. Now again, we got people going against every doctrine that there is in Scripture, and the people want to deny the deity of Christ. That's damnable, I think. Okay, if your Christology is wrong, you're in trouble. Okay, but I, I want to, you know, this is just one of those texts that he brings this out that Paul does, and, and po- most people just read over this and they totally miss what's going on here. Robert L. Thomas writes this: the two persons are one God as shown by several structural features in verse 16 and 17. Number one, the pronoun atos himself in verse 16 is singular and probably should be understood as emphasizing both persons. Our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father himself. It could read this way, now may himself, our Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father. And then he says, quite interesting. And that is interesting. Why does Paul use this kind of words? What's he trying to tell us here? Well, <clears throat> he says the Lord Yeshua the Christ himself and God our Father. And again, himself is singular. Now may himself our Lord Yeshua and Christ. We have this same thing in 1 Thessalonians 3.11. He says, now may our God and Father, except he's switching the order here, himself and our Lord Yeshua, Direct our way to you. Now, direct here is katayuthano. And although it's singular, again, it refers to both God the Father and Yeshua. So we have a compound subject of a singular verb. And, And to address prayers to the Lord Yeshua in the same breath with God the Father implies a very high Christology. This prayer would be proper only if the apostles held to the deity of Christ. Putting him on the same plane. All right, back to Thomas, number two. He says, loved us 
and gave us, verse 16, represent two singular participles whose actions are applicable to both the Son and the Father. The singular number is explained by Paul's conception of the two persons as one God. <clears throat> and again, he said he loved us. So who is it that he said he loved us? Well, it's the Lord Yeshua and God the Father. It's both of them. And again, the singular participles are explained by Paul's view that the two persons are in fact one God. Back to Thomas, the point three. He says, encourage and strengthen in verse 17 are likewise singular in number, though they express the action of a compound subject. This grammatical feature is attributable to the oneness of essence among the persons of the Godhead. He says, Paul conceived of Jesus Christ as God in the same full sense as he conceived God the Father. No other explanation of this unusual combination of grammatical features is satisfying. I agree. I say amen. And again, like I said, there's so, so, there's so much stuff like this in the Scripture that points to the deity of Christ, but people will take some verse and try to twist it and say, see, Jesus is not God. Then you're in trouble. So Paul, is what he's doing here is he elevates the Lord Yeshua. He uses the full title, mentioning, and he mentions Him before the Father. Now that's unusual. He not, doesn't normally do that. He usually puts these two together, but it's usually the Father first. And I think he's just stressing, again, the position, the deity of our Lord. And then he says, who loved us? This, this points in general to the work of God, the Father and the Son, and forms the basis or foundation for our eternal comfort and our good hope that God the Father and God the Son are able to give. All we are, people, and all we have is because of the fact that God loves us. And we stressed that last week. He says, give us the eternal comfort. Comfort here is from the Greek word periklesis. It means comfort or encouragement. And Paul puts the future of the Thessalonian believers, and really all believers, in strong contrast with those previously described as perishing, in verse 10 to 12. They're eternally condemned, but believers have eternal comfort and good hope. This specific form is used only here in the New Testament. Let me give you a biblical definition of hope. Because I think our word hope has come to have a, a totally different meaning today than which the Bible uses it. You know, today it indicates something of a contingency or an expectation that you hope something will happen. Like, I hope it doesn't rain today. Well, you just, you know, okay, maybe you hope it doesn't. Or I hope I can make it the next payday. Indicating some uneasiness, some uncertainty about the future, that's not the New Testament usage. In the New Testament, it indicates an absolute certainty about the future. An attitude of eager expectancy and confidence in God's ability to do what He promised He was going to do. The Greek term used here is elpis, and it refers to a confident expectation about the future. Now, if you're brave enough to share the preterist view with others, and I hope you are, but I wouldn't just go up to people and say, do you know the Lord returned in 8070? It's kind of a it's kind of a hard start that way, you know? Yeah, tell me more. No, the they, throw, they tear their clothes, they throw dust in the air, and they run away screaming. No, I, I personally, I think the best way is to ask them questions. 
You know, hey, I got a question. Can you, look at this. Look at Matthew 16, 27 and 28. Well, what does the Lord mean by some of those standing here will still be there when he returns in a second? How is that possible? You get them to start thinking. You know, make them think they came up with it. <laughs> you know, and say, oh, yeah, you know, I heard about that view somewhere, you know. Well, if you are brave enough to share that, one question I got a lot was, where's my hope? And that kind of startled me. I'm like, where's your hope? Yeah. Uh, what is your hope? Well, what was their hope? Their hope was to be snatched off the planet in the rapture. That's their hope. You know, and every time things are bad, beat me up, Lord. Every time things are good, hang on, Lord, just a little bit. Wait, I'm not ready right now, okay? It's only in bad times you want to leave, all right? And so is that people's hope? I think most Christians would say yes. When you, when you tell them the second coming is a past event, they feel like they've lost their hope. Well, the Bible definitely teaches that the coming of Christ was a blessed hope. Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. Well, here's the problem. The second coming of Christ was the hope of the first century church. But it's a hope that has been fulfilled. We live in a different age than the original recipients of this letter. We're past the time when he did come. So people say, well, then do we not have hope today? And I'm like, what do you mean? What are you looking forward to? What is our hope? Well, for all of us who have placed our faith in Christ, our hope is heaven. And again, hope is not, well, I hope it works out. No, it's a, it's a positive thing. We know this is going to happen. Remember what we said, biblical hope is not finger-crossing, it's a confident expectation of good things to come. And my hope is heaven. I know when this life's over, I'm going to heaven. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, I know the Preterist community is divided on this. Whether this is talking about your physical body being the tent that dies and then you go to heaven and get your spiritual body, or this is talking about the covenant. And the old covenant's about to fade away and we have a new covenant. That's our new home. Either way, it's in heaven, people. Okay? Someday, we'll physically die. And when that happens, we don't go out of existence. We don't go to the lake of fire. We don't go to Sheol. We go to heaven the dwelling place of God. That is our eternal home. So Paul says, <clears throat> May our Lord Yeshua the Christ Himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. It's good hope because it's absolutely certain. It's based on God's promises. It's also good because it isn't based on our merits. It's not based on our performance, but rather on God's undeserved favor. This eternal comfort and good hope, he says, is through grace. You know, I don't think anything can encourage the heart and bring stability more to our life than a firm grasp on what grace is all about. It's grace that saves us. It's grace that keeps us. It's grace that we'll, by grace we'll enter into the very presence of God. Now, what's interesting in Romans 15, 4, Paul combines the same ideas of encouragement and hope just like this verse. And he says this in, in 15.4. He says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance 
and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. <clears throat> so here, encouragement and hope, same words as are in our text. They're understood as the fruit of the message contained in the Scripture. Preferably here, he's talking about the Tanakh. So believers, <clears throat> God gives encouragement and hope to His people through the Scriptures. He says, endurance through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It seems to me like the Scriptures are really important in our lives. Maybe we should read them. Maybe we should get familiar with what it says. And again, this is talking about the Tanakh. That, that through them, we're going to have hope. Yeah, that's a good idea. Maybe we should spend some time reading. All right, verse 17. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Believers, because we have hope, we can comfort our hearts. <clears throat> What's interesting here is, a lot of writers bring this out, comfort was not something offered in Greek society. Okay, so he talks about comfort, and you think, well, the Greeks didn't, they didn't get into that at all, really. And several ancient writers echoed the words of Theognis. Theognis was a poet, and he wrote this. This is a poem that will really encourage you. Best of all for mortals is never to have been born, but for those who have been born, to die as soon as possible. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> that's, a, that's a pretty bleak, pretty bleak view, but that's the Greeks, okay? They, they, didn't, they weren't really into comfort. He says, in every good word and work, believers are encouraged to do and to say good things. Paul's concern is to encourage and strengthen the Thessalonians in the midst of their persecution and their battle against erroneous teaching. So they'll continue on to do and say good things. Believers, I believe we also need to stand firm. Just as they needed to stand firm, we need to stand firm today. We've got a plenty of battles we're facing, and we're going to stand firm today by holding on to the Scriptures. Hanging on to them, knowing them, understanding them, clinging to them. Spending time in them like they're important or something. And we do that as we're in the Scriptures, we put on the Lord Yeshua. We walk as He walks. We begin to imitate Him as we see Him fleshed out in the Scriptures. People, our culture is in decline. And we need believers to stand firm on the truth of the Word of God. Because the world needs hope now more than I've ever seen it. And the only hope they're going to get is coming from Christ. And we're there to offer hope. We're there to be the encouragement, to be the light. But it means standing firm because you're going to be attacked on every level. I mean, if you mention anything about Christianity and this culture we're in, it just brings you under attack. They, you have to be tolerant today of everything except Christianity. Okay, So we need to stand firm. It is a battle going on out there. And they need to see the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. <clears throat> Lord, I pray you would encourage our hearts through the word of God. That, Father, we would spend time in it, nourishing our hearts, our minds, growing in our understanding, Lord, of who you are. Growing in our walk, Lord, to be more and more like you every day. Thank you, Lord, for your patience with us. Lord, I pray we would be a light and salt to the culture in which we live. We would minister to them, Father through your grace, 
Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Questions? Comments? Um, the Bible mentions the doctrine of demons. Uh-huh. Um, would you say that, obviously, if demons are not around, would you say we, we still battle doctrines of demons and that they, you know, they were, the inception of them came from the ancient of days when they were accepted and those principles still are being played out today? Yeah, I think we still battle doctrines of demons because these doctrines, they're evil doctrines. They're, you know, often, I don't think demons are promoting these things anymore, but yes, I, I, we have a lot of, seems demonic inspired people promoting things that are just damnable you know say they're they're demonic in that sense i don't think there's really demons behind it but you know i mean you see some people and you're like yeah they might be possessed (laughs) i mean no i'm not i don't mean literally (laughs) so that was my first part the other one is uh how do you you explain revelation 22 15 talks about uh, those outside the city um one of them the people outside the city are so, uh, practicing sorcery. What uh, is that? Something supernatural? Is that well, you know, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip here, but I believe that word sorcery is pharmakeia. Mm. Hmm. Okay, does that make yeah, sense? Right. Down with the pharmacist. <laughs> <laughs> Which you know, and that that is tied together in scripture. Okay, sorcery and pharmakeia, the use of drugs. All right because they use drugs for all that kind of thing. But yeah, and the interesting thing is, we're in the city of God, we're in the new covenant, they're outside. You know, which goes against most futurist view of, you know, Revelation 21 and 22, because this is the worth. The world's all gone, and we're in heaven now, or we're on earth, whatever. But they're outside the city, there's still these people, because they're not in the new covenant. So they're still there. Someone says, is a carnivore diet biblical? (laughs) Yes. Listen, God told Peter what? Rise, Rise, kill, kill, and eat. eat. You can't kill a vegetable. (laughs) (laughs) What about Daniel? (laughs) Okay, I'm not, I am not, I'm joking, okay? But, you know, you really can't kill a vegetable. What I'm joking, I'm not saying the carnivore diet is biblical. Why did God give us fruits? But I tell you this. The fruits and vegetables then world of difference between what we're eating now. Okay. First of all, most of our food is so contaminated with Roundup, you know, that it just, they say it's almost in everybody's system. And, and vegetables are just the world of difference. Some people have top trouble, trouble processing those things where they don't have it with meat. So I'm just, I don't think one diet is for everybody. People are different. We're all different. Something will work for you fantastically. Somebody else might try it. No, it's not working at all. Okay? So I'm just offering the carnivore diet as I'm on a carnivore Facebook group, and the testimonies are pretty incredible from people. The things that the autoimmune disease that have gone away, the sicknesses, the different problems they had that that just disappeared once they went on it. Uh, Gary Cole says, what resource or organization does Stan research for the persecuted church information? I don't know. Stan, you got an answer for him? (laughs) Where are you getting your information from? Do you have a a specific source or are you just using different sources? 
It's, he gets his stuff from the World Watch List. I think it's called Brother Andrew, he said. Well, yeah, he's with the Lord now a long time, I guess, or recently. But uh, I think it's called, they changed the, uh, it used to be Open Doors, and now I think they split it. I think overseas is called Open Doors, and the U.S. is Global Relief something. So, But it's, it's all, all come from the World Watch List. Okay. The... Um, What's the magazine we used to use? Persecuted Church? No, it was uh, Voice of the Martyrs. The Voice of the Martyrs. They put out good information. We quit supporting them because they had some uh, scandalous things going on with their fundraising and building projects. So, uh, Pastor Dave, this is Mike. You have been so instrumental in my growth in this newfound understanding called full preterism. More than a year ago, I remember you said the book, Behold, I'm Coming Quickly, was an early book you started on your journey to preterism. I tried to find it, only to find it was out of print. I think about two weeks ago, you told us how now it's in, in it's been reprinted, and I immediately ordered it. I got it the other day and read the whole thing in an hour before your message today. What a great, concise presentation on the whole truth. I think you need to promote it often. Thank you again for your powerful teaching and your faithfulness to the Word of God. Yes, I, I agree. Um, I have the book. I get, gave it to a couple people here, and they've just said, oh, this is really a good book. It is a good source. It's very small. I mean, it's a thin book. Like you said, he read it in an hour. It's called Behold, I Come Quickly. And Ron McRae, is that who's, who republished it? Yeah, I can't remember the first name, but McRae, I think it's Ron. He republished under the same name. It's on Amazon. You can get it. Behold, I come quickly. But it is a great resource because it's really thin. You know, you don't. You're not asking for a, you know, a week-long commitment from somebody. They can read it really quickly, and you know, it's got all the pertinent stuff in there. Yeah, Ron. Ron McRae. Doctor. Doctor Ron McRae. Um, <clears throat> I don't know who this is from, but someone says when Scripture refers to the coming of the Lord or day of the Lord, there seems to always be a near or soon to be time indicator. How futurists generally reconcile? <laughs> Man, I'm with you 100%, and I can't answer that question, because why? Well, you got people like Sam Frost. He is redefining the time statements, okay? Just making them say what they don't actually say at all. And the thing that's so powerful to me, it's not like he just said, he's going to happen soon, Okay. He says soon, quickly, shortly, some of you standing here, this generation, the Lord is at the door. I mean, he just like he come up, let me see, what other time words can I use? Let me get them all in there to make sure nobody misses this. It's going to happen soon. Yeah. <laughs> A date would have helped greatly, okay? But then, you know, I don't know, they'd have done something with that. John from Northern California. Great message. Thank you so much. The Corinthians were instructed to partake of the Lord's Supper until Christ returns. Since that was fulfilled in the first century, should we not partake in the Lord's Supper anymore? No, I, I think go back and read that again. He says, as often as you partake, you remember the Lord's death until He comes. He doesn't say stop when He comes. You just remember it until He comes. Here's my position on the Lord's Supper. We do it here once a month. Why? Because we want to. Okay, and I've had people go, how can you do that? It's simple, we just get the juice and the cup. You know, why is that a problem? 
And then they'll say, well, the Bible, and they, so they're against it. And I just, then I ask this, is it sin? Is it wrong for us to do the Lord's? No, it's an area of freedom. We can do it if we want to do it. And so we want to do it. It's a great time for just to stop and focus on the Lord's death, what he's done for us. We don't, we're not saying it's commanded. We're not saying everybody has to do it. We're just saying we want to do it. And it's an area of freedom. So I don't know why you know, people make a big deal of it. You know, because, okay, so if it's not commanded, it, it, you know, I'm not saying it is, but I'm have, we have the freedom to do it. Celebrating his birth. <laughs> yeah. Why do you celebrate his birth? Exactly. There's a lot of celebrations that we do that, you know, or maybe are not biblical, but if you want to do them, you know, one man esteems one day above another, another man esteems every day alike. Let everyone be fully persuaded in his own mind. Okay. Norm says, David, thank you again for the truth. We still fight against spiritual darkness in high places. However, those high places are no longer in the heavens. Yeah, they're in north of Richmond, right? <laughs> they're the high places of men in power who are spiritually dead. The adversary is gone, but his children will always be. Uh, we must hold fast because the word of God will always be under attack by godless people. Amen, Norm. That is so true. Um, you know, and I used to think, I used to struggle with the idea of the demons and devils being destroyed in AD 70 because of what I saw. You know, I look at DC and I look at the, you know, the col collaboration of these people working together for evil. But then, you know, I just realized it's just they all have the same agenda. That's all. They're all money. They want money. They want power. And so they all work together and do these evil, sick things. They don't need a spiritual force behind them. Man is just depraved. He's, he's evil. You know, because God said the imaginations of his heart are evil continually. They are. Especially, like I said, you just get in a little bit of power. And then that money starts coming in. And then you're like, okay, we're good. You know, that's what, you know, to, so refreshing to me about this singer, you know, Anthony. I mean, what in the world to turn down an $8 million, How many people would turn down an $8 million record deal? He lives in a camper that he got off of Facebook with a tarp over it to keep it from leaking. He's just a normal person who likes his life but is sick of the government intervention in it. I can relate. <clears throat> Uh, this is from Gary and Chris and PA. Dave, I think the hope in society is a blind hope compared to the biblical hope that we have who are trusting Christ consistently. Having a relationship with Him and the Father, what more could we want? Such a beautiful blessing. You're right. I mean, you know, their hope is so... What hope do they have? You know, well, we have... It doesn't... As bad as the, our country is getting, this is not our home, people. Okay? It's just not. Sean and Rachel in Colorado, I believe the fact that Scripture already came true confirmed the accuracy of the prophecy. <clears throat> yeah, I, I mean, the Bible is so clear. You know, the prophecies that were made have been fulfilled with 100% accuracy. And how does that happen? You know, that just doesn't happen apart from God writing the Scripture. You know, we try to explain to people, I was trying to explain it to one of my granddaughters the other day, and I'm like, look, the Bible is written over a period of 1,600 years by over 40 different authors, and it's unified. How does that happen other than supernaturally? Where do you get two authors to agree on anything? 
You got 40 men that don't contradict or you know oppose each other written over a period. That's just, I think it makes it pretty plain that this is a supernatural book and that's why we got to spend time in it. Okay. We done? Yes? Just a little bit off subject, but... Uh, uh, no. <laughs> Go on. It's, it's really, well, it might be important. Uh, I can't remember the general, but... And he put warning, 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 and he had a video clip with Alex Jones. And supposedly Alex Jones had two whistleblowers from TSA. And starting next month, they're going to start pushing masking by December, full lockdowns. Right, and, I, and I've heard that too. They're, they're trying to bring the mass mandate back. Listen, here's my opinion. I think people are a little bit smarter by now. Some people, okay? <laughs> I'm not putting a lot of stock on the general pop, okay? Because they're like, oh, germs, no, let's hide, you know? So, yeah, they're, they're going to try whatever they can try. But we're in a state where so many whistleblowers, so much information is out. We know so much now that's out in the public. I believe it's Tuesday. The BRICS nations are meeting to talk about going to the gold standard. There's like, I think, 79 nations are supposed to meet at that meeting. If they go back to the gold standard, the American currency is going to drop like a rock. Okay, so that's happening on Tuesday. I think things are building to a head. I don't, I think their game is really up. That's my opinion. Of course. I was hoping for this two and a half years ago, so who would have <laughs> Bob? I, I know last week we talked in passing about God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. But I was mentioning that to, uh, well, we were talking about the Bible, some of my friends. And one of the guys said he didn't mean that he hated Esau. <laughs> he meant that he loved Esau less. Right. But it doesn't say that. And I'm thinking, I go by what the Bible said. That's, that's, that's an explanation that I've heard so often. It doesn't mean he hated him. It says he hated him, but it doesn't mean that. Well, you know what? You go back to Malachi, where this is coming from, and he talks about because he hated Esau, boom, 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 he did this, he destroyed his land. And I'm like, if that's... Love, then I don't really want to be part of that. Just liking a little. Yeah, so that's the thing. Go back to Malachi and look at what it says there. Okay, and it's like, yeah, okay, this doesn't fit. But people come up with that because they want, because the the belief in modern society is God loves everybody, and if He loved everybody, then He died for everybody, then everybody's going to be saved. Mm -hmm. And universalism is true. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word there, something. Do what? And the Hebrew word raw. What is it there for? For hatred? I'm not sure. Raw is the Hebrew word for evil, but I'm not sure what the word used there for hatred is. <laughs> but like I said, if you go back to and look at it in Malachi, it's pretty clear that it's not liking less. It's liking a whole lot less. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you don't want that kind of love, all right? Believe me. 